You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. All right. Good morning, Grace Point. How are we doing? Doing all right? Good. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. You see, you are here at Grace Point Church Northwest. And at Grace Point Church Northwest, we exist in a collective of churches that are all about one mission. We have one here, and so welcome here this morning. We have another one over at Grace Point Church, Ann and Allen. And both of us exist to live out one mission, and that is to make disciples of Jesus that live in community for the community. And so it is our goal and hope that as God continues to bless these churches, that we will see this entire valley saturated in churches that exist for that mission, for the good of this city, to live in community for those communities. And so we're glad that you're here this morning. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, feel free as you leave this morning to swing by the new here table. We have free Bibles there, both in English and in Spanish. In the meantime, you can follow along by checking out the side screen, most of the scriptures and stuff that I'm going to be walking through today are going to be up there. Now this morning we're continuing in our series called The Gospel of John. And the reason we have entitled this The Book of John that you may believe is because that is the entire reason John wrote this book. He wrote this book because he desires for you and me to believe in Jesus. And this morning what John is going to share with us is that Jesus isn't necessarily safe, but Jesus is good. Let me say that again. Jesus isn't necessarily safe, but Jesus is good. Let me explain. Some of you guys have heard me talk about this before, but when my daughter was really young, I was awakened one morning by her cry. My father-in-law was in town, and not wanting her to wake everybody up and to help Jess out, I decided to get up and go pick up what I call my sweet sweet, my journey. And so I go into her room, and I pick her up, and we walk out of that room. And as we walk out, my son, who was little at that time, was in the room next to her, and she goes, shh, Kay's sleeping. But just true to form, as soon as we got a couple feet away from that door, she starts talking in a loud voice. And so I quickly got her downstairs. I rushed into the backyard, and I found that my father-in-law was already awake. He was back there smoking his pipe. And so I let Journey go. She goes out in the yard and starts playing in the yard. And my father-in-law's there. And shortly later, my wife comes down and joins us. Now that we're all sitting there talking, having a good time. I did not have a watch on me. I did not have a phone on me. So I wasn't prepared for what was going to happen next. That as we were sitting there talking, I heard the noise, and all of a sudden, our sprinkler system came on. Now, Jess, my father-in-law, and I were fine, but who was it? My sweet, sweet. She was out in the yard. And with that, she looked at me screaming for help. And I did what a good father does in those situations. I just started laughing. With that, she turns her attention to my wife, and Jess goes out there and picks her up and takes her into the house. Now, I expected her to be completely wet. But at that time in her life, she was blessed with the curly hair of my wife, and because it was short, it went pretty much straight out. And all the water from the yard was in her hair, and her hair shielded her like an umbrella. And it was absolutely amazing. Now, the reason I tell you that is because I think that story oftentimes describes what the Christian life could be like. One moment, everything could be great, and then the next moment, everything is terrible. One moment, there is joy, and then the next, there is great fear. And as followers of Jesus Christ, I'm oftentimes surprised by Christians who are surprised when trials and tribulations come upon us. You see, 10 chapters after the chapter we're looking at in John 6, in John chapter 16, Jesus says something that you and I need to embrace, and it's this. He says he has told us these things 
so that in me you may have peace. Listen to what Jesus says. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In this verse, Jesus promises us two things. He promises us peace, and he says he's going to overcome, he's overcome the world. But Jesus also tells you and me something else extremely important. Jesus doesn't say you might have tribulation. What does he say? You will have tribulation. You're going to have it. You see, suffering and trials in this life is not a matter of if, but when. It's not on the screen, but in 1 Peter 4.12, the apostle Peter writes this. He says, beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see, that Greek word there for surprise is rooted in the, in the word hospitality. And what Peter is saying is you and I shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes into our life like we are surprised when the parents or the siblings or the kids knock on the door surprising you. They're back home from college or they're in town and you realize you don't have enough food for them to eat. You don't have a bed made, anything like that. Some of you know what that feels like and it's shocking. Peter is saying you and I should not be shocked when suffering knocks on the door. It's going to come. And what I'm here to tell you this morning is this is not only true of us, but it's also true of Jesus' disciples. You see, in John chapter 6, 16 through 18, we read this. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea of Capernaum to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, you can't forget what we talked about last week, that last week the disciples experienced something absolutely amazing. And what was that? It was Jesus feeding upwards of 20,000 people with a, a small boy's Lunchable. If you don't remember, it's the story of the feeding of 5,000, but the feeding of the 5,000 in that culture, they only counted the men. But we see there's a young boy there. There was probably women, other children. Most scholars estimate there was anywhere from 15 to 20,000 people and so the disciples find this young boy with five barley loaves, which is the bread of the poor. It's like a biscuit or a cracker and two pickled sardines, if you will. And Jesus looks at that and he multiplies it. And he ends up feeding 15 to 20,000 people. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd want to be there. That would be really impressive, would it not? I could imagine the disciples as they're sitting around watching this whole thing take place go, man, this is a really good day. I mean, Jesus took a Lunchable and made a buffet. Incredible. But here they are in a high moment in their life, hanging out with Jesus. Jesus has done something amazing. And in just a few hours, where are they? They're out at the sea. And the waves start to pick up. And it starts to get dangerous. Like I told you before, Grace Point, I love you. But you cannot be surprised when the fiery trial comes in your life. This is not abnormal for the life of a Christian. They are going to come, and they are going to come when you least expect it. When Jesus did a miraculous work in my family... He saved my father, he saved my mother, he saved my brothers, and he saved me last, okay? And we all got baptized and started loving Jesus and going to a different church. My entire extended family disowned us. Every single weekend, I would play with my cousins. It wasn't uncommon during the summer for us to spend every single weekend down at the lake at my grandfather's cabin. And in one instance, all of that stopped. It all just went away. They disowned us. And I vividly remember as a middle school boy looking out the front window, my uncle lived across the street. I'm originally from Kentucky and there was a huge derby party and all my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, everybody I hung out with were across the street and here I was in the house with my brothers and my, my parents. They disowned us. I'll never forget this kid, we'll call him John. 
He came to our youth group, and the first time I met him, he was extremely frustrated. And he was mad because I had preached a sermon on, on morality, or basically sexual morality, like, like honoring God with your bodies because we love Jesus and we trust he's good and this whole thing. Anyway, he got really mad at me because his girlfriend broke up with him, <laughs> like right afterwards. And so when I walked out, he was ticked. But for some reason, John kept coming, and God did an amazing work in his life. He became a Christian. He stopped doing drugs. He started hanging out with other brothers and sisters in Christ, started serving in the church. And one day, while he was coming to an ultimate Frisbee event that a bunch of us were hanging out, playing outside, just doing some fun stuff, while he was on his way there, uh, a bunch of his friends stopped him and beat him up. I'll never forget him showing up just completely bloody. And they beat him up. And then I'll never forget talking to this one guy. He would not sacrifice his integrity at work. And he would not do something they were telling him to do. And because he wouldn't do it, he got fired. You see, like the disciples, we're going to find ourselves in difficult and troublesome situations. And we have to remember that Jesus didn't say it was a matter of if, but when. But you know what's shocking about this entire story? Is who sent these disciples into the storm? See, like I told you last week, the gospel of Mark is extremely helpful that we have the Gospel of John, but we also have the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And just like John, these are biographies of Jesus, eyewitness testimony that give a little bit of a different picture of what's taking place. Think of like NBC, ABC, CNN, Fox, BBC, all reporting on the same issue. You kind of get the idea. And so what we see taking place here in the Gospel of Mark is who sent them into the storm. And listen to what it says in verse 45. Immediately, he, now who is the he here? We have to get our pronouns correct. Who's the he? When in doubt, and you're at church, whose name do you say? Jesus. Okay, you got it. Everybody gets an A. Okay. It says, immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Whose idea was it to get in the boat? Jesus. And what's interesting is the text tells us he actually had to make his disciples get into this boat. The text tells us they didn't really want to go. Why? I can only speculate. Maybe they didn't want Jesus to be alone. Maybe they thought he was going to do something greater than even feeding 20,000 people. But all we know is that Jesus puts them in the boat. He sends them away. He sends the crowd away. And he goes up to the mountain and he prays. And he prays from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. Now, this isn't the first time we read of Jesus and his disciples in the sea. A couple of chapters before Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 4, we see that Jesus is in a different storm with his disciples. The only difference is, is they're all together. Jesus is asleep in the stern. The waves get going. The storm starts roaring. Waves are pouring into the boat. And the disciples look at Jesus and they say, Master, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? And with that, Jesus, who is asleep in a storm, that's amazing in of itself, gets up and he looks at the wind, the sea, and the waves, and he says, peace, be still. And the text says the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. That literally, the language implies that what Jesus is talking, or the tone he is using, is like he's talking to a little kid, putting him in timeout. Now, I have three kids, and trying to get some of them to eat their dinner, or trying to get them to pick up the dog poo, or trying to get them to do certain things is really hard. I will talk to them like kids, and I will say, peace, be still, like I'm trying to put them in a timeout or something, but sometimes they don't listen. And when that happens, what do I do? I call on a higher power, my wife. And she comes in, reinforcements, and we do zone defense, and we attack these kids, right, trying to get them to do what we want them to do. Well, in the same way, 
Jesus is standing up, but he is not calling on a higher power. Jesus does not do an incantation. He does not do Harry Potter expelliarmus. He does none of that. Yet Jesus in this moment does exhibits the power of God and only what God can do. And what's that? He brings peace to the storm. Yet we're in a different storm here. And there's a big difference in this storm compared to that one. And what's that? They were all in the boat together. Except this time, who's in the boat? The disciples. And who is not there? Jesus. He's up on the mountain praying. Now, don't misunderstand. Many of the guys in this boat, they were experienced fishermen. They knew about water. They knew about the sea. But they did not think about water and the sea the way you and I do. A lot of times when you and I think of water and the sea, we think of rest, tranquility, and fun. Several years ago, some friends of mine, uh, we all got together and went down to Lake Mojave. And we got on some boats, and we had a ton of fun. We laughed. We were swimming, the whole deal. And we knew we had a lot of fun, because when we brought the boat back to the dock, the guy that worked at the dock said, oh, you guys had fun. I was like, yeah, we did. How do you know? He said, you're only got fumes in this tank. And we had a lot of fun until I got the gas bill. It's a lot more expensive down on the water. But we had fun. It was a great experience. But that's not at all what the disciples would have been thinking when they thought of water. You see, for the disciples, water represented chaos, destruction, and death. You and I, we have marine biologists that can tell us a bit what's under the sea. I got a friend who's a marine biologist, and he told me after Shark Week, Megalodon existed, but he's not real anymore. Good news, right? But you know what he told me did exist? The Kraken. Do you know what the Kraken is? It's that big octopus thing. He talked about whales coming up from the deeps with lacerations around them that made you just kind of fret at how big that thing was that wrapped it up. Makes you think of the sea a little different, doesn't it? But not only that, but in this culture, other beliefs, other religions during that time believed their gods lived in the sea. And when a ship would sink, it was believed that the ocean literally came up and swallowed that ship. But the disciples not only believed in what was possible, they also believed in what was actual. Storms could and would appear on this sea in a moment's of notice. You see, the sea was 685 feet below sea level. The mountains that surrounded it were anywhere from 20 or 2,000 to 2,500 feet above. As that cool mountain air would collide with that warm sea air, storms, or better yet, a more appropriate term is hurricanes, would appear out of nowhere. And we know that this storm is intense because Mark will later tell us that Jesus looks out and he sees his disciples painfully making headway. I mean, you've got to picture this scene. It's dark. And it's really dark. The type of dark where you don't see anything. And the disciples, with all of their might, are rowing and not getting any closer to shore. They can't see where they're going, and I imagine they're absolutely terrified. Most of us in this room probably have never experienced something quite like this, but I know somebody who did, and that was my father. You see, my father, we lived in Wyoming the first seven years of my life, and I remember the day my dad told me he and his boss ended up taking a brand new Baja boat, you know, the old school Miami Vice boat, took one of those that came into his dealership out on Pathfinder Lake. Now, the only problem was, is dad and his boss didn't fill up the gas tank. And so as they were out on this lake, a storm came up. They were out of gas. Both of them hunkered down into the bottom of this boat. And they were at the the whim, if you will, of the elements. He goes on to tell me that this boat got thrusted up against a cliff to where he climbed out and went to God and got help. And whoever, like the Coast Guard or whatever it was on that lake, ended up strapping him to the front where he pointed away to go rescue his boss. 
But the boat was totaled. Last year, my dad was in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He works for Snap-on. He was on a box truck or a toolbox truck. And while he was standing there, a couple of guys broke out into this story about these two dummies that took a boat out on Pathfinder Lake and totaled it. And my, you imagine their surprise when my father goes, yeah, I was one of those dummies. He later recalled to me that nothing exciting has happened in Wyoming in 20 plus years. <laughs> the disciples, however, weren't in a Baja boat. They weren't on a yacht. They had no place to hunker down and wait, for the, wait out the storm. They were in a little boat in a hurricane, fearing for their lives. And I probably would say they're questioning, Jesus, where are you and why would you put us in that situation? You see, John tells us in chapter 6, verse 17, this, Jesus has not yet come to them. He hasn't come. So what happened? Verse 19, listen to what it says. When they had rowed about three or four miles, what do the disciples do? What do they do? They keep on rowing. They don't give up. Sure, they're scared. Sure, they're probably questioning. Sure, they're probably doubting. But they keep rowing in the direction Jesus told them to go. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this, is when the storm of this life, the storms in this life come flooding in or raining down upon you, what do you do? Do you keep rowing? I don't know about you, but many of us, including me, we sometimes just want to give up, right? Some of us just want to jump overboard. Some of us want to jump into a different ship, look for a life raft, do something. But not the disciples. What do they do? They just keep rowing. Kind of makes me think of Dory. Just keep swimming, right? What do they do? They just keep rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing. How do you and I row when the storms of life come into our souls? I'll tell you this. It's not anything new, but rather it's going back to some really old things. You see, when the storms of this life come flooding into our lives and hammering down upon us, it's tempting for us to stay home on Sunday mornings. It's hard to pick up a Bible. It's difficult to cry out in prayer one more time. But I'll tell you this, when the storms of this life come into our soul, when we avoid those things, we are avoiding things that Jesus has given us to keep our heads above water. You see, I can only imagine that some of you in here are thinking, Travis, I've been doing those things. I've got a storm going on right now. And trust me, I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm here this morning. What are you talking about? These things don't work. I had a friend of mine explain to me this week that he said they are working, but it's kind of like a seed in the ground. When you plant a seed in the ground, you don't see necessarily what's taking place, but eventually what happens, it starts to grow. But if you keep trying to dig up that seed to see if it's growing like you did when you were in elementary school and you got that little styrofoam cup and you put a seed in it and you're just like, I don't think anything's happening. You keep digging down there. What's your teacher say? What your parents say? Stop it. Because if you dig down there to look for the growth, what are you going to do? You're going to end up killing the seed. And what we have to trust in is that God has given us these means of grace, if you will, to grow us. And instead of us just constantly digging for the growth, many of us just have to trust and keep cultivating and keep watering and keep praying like crazy for God to bring the fruit. But please don't miss this other point. The guys weren't in the boat alone, were they? How many other guys were in this boat? At least 12. And I heard one theologian say it this week. He said this this boat is like the church and the sea of the world getting thrown all about. But inside the boat, there's not just one guy. There's not just two guys. There's not just three guys. There's 12 guys. And it is possible that some were rowing while others were resting. And when they would rest, others would pick up and row. They were in this boat together. 
And one of the gifts God has given you and me as we go through this life and encounter these storms is other brothers and sisters in Christ called the church. In the New Testament, there are 59 one another passages. If Jesus says it once, we should listen to it. If he says it more than once, we're probably missing a biggie on the eye chart. 59 one another passages. What? Love one another, pray for one another, serve one another, carry one another's burdens. Have family members that tell me, oh, I got enough church in the mountains by myself, but nothing is more contrary to what Jesus says in this book. You and I were never meant to live alone in the mountains by ourselves. We were meant to live together. I recently came across a story about a lady named Frances Chadwick, or Florence Chadwick. She was a pioneer for women in long-distance swimming, and in 1952, Chadwick decided to attempt to swim this 26 mile distance between the California coastland and the Catalina Islands. And as she was swimming, she faced a lot of adversity to accomplish the feat. The water was icy cold and choppy, and during her swim, she actually had a team that was with her to look out for sharks and to help her if any unexpected cramps, injuries, or fatigue set in. Roughly 15 hours into her swim, a thick fog began to set in, clouding Chadwick's vision and confidence. Her mother happened to be in one of the boats at the time. As Chadwick relayed to her team, she could not complete the swim. She swam for another hour before giving up. And while she was teetering in that boat, she was told that she only had another mile to go and she would have made it to the shore. After the swim, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land, I might have made it. It wasn't that she was too tired, that she wasn't a good enough swimmer that caused Florence Chadwick to fail, it was the fog. And some of you have come in here this morning and you got a fog around you. And the fog is thick. And I just want to encourage you, don't give up. Keep on rowing. Why? Because Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes, he comes at the right time. He never comes too late or too early. Listen to what the text says. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus meets them in the fog and he meets them in a storm and his presence is enough to calm them when the fears of the storm are raging all around them. You see, Mark is again helpful. In chapter six, verse 46 through 48, we've heard a little bit of this, but check it out again. It says, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray and evening came and the boat was out at the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. What does Mark say Jesus was doing while they were all out at the sea? He was praying. And I imagine he was possibly praying for his disciples. But at some point, he looks and he sees his disciples. They're three to four miles away, which just shows you his omniscience, right? That he can look out and see what's going on. And then what does Jesus do? He takes a hike. Jesus possibly walks down that mountain. He walks out onto that sea through that storm and he meets his disciples at a boat. And as he, he approaches, the disciples are scared out of their mind, right? So another gospel says they think they saw a ghost. But Jesus, knowing their fear, looks at them and he says, ego and me. And some of you are like, what? Let go of my ego? What? He said, ego and me. What does he say? It is I. Two Greek words that essentially mean the same thing. Ego, which means I or I am, and me, which means I or I am. It's almost as if Jesus stutters when he looks at him and he says, I am, I am. 
Yet these Jewish guys sitting inside this boat would have made no mistake. They would have known Jesus wasn't stuttering. They would know that Jesus is doing something that would actually make them more terrified of him than the sea around them. You see, Jesus invokes the very name of God. In the book of Exodus, we read that the prophet Moses is told by God to go into Egypt and to free God's people from 400 years of slavery. And as Moses is about to go, he's scared to death and he says, God, who should I say sent me? What name should I give the people when they ask, by whose power and might are you doing this? And listen to what God says to Moses in Exodus 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. There is no mistaking what Jesus is doing here. He is saying that he is the God who has sent them into the storm and the God who has the power over the storm and the God who's going to reveal more of who he is in the storm. He is God in the flesh. And the question you have to ask yourself is this. Do you want Jesus to take you out of the storm? Or do you want Jesus to meet you in your storm? Jesus loves us so much that sometimes he doesn't take the storm away. But what does he do? He comes and he joins us in the middle of it. This past week, I watched an interview with Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert, the late night show guy. Some of you guys already know where I'm going about because you saw it. It ended up being like watched a ton. Anyway, Anderson Cooper looked at Stephen Colbert and he said this, he said, you once said you learned to love the things that you wished had not happened. Let me ask you. You went on to say, what punishments of God are not gifts? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that, Stephen? And listen to what Colbert said. Now, I'm just going to read it, and I'm going to try to do it carefully so you understand. If you can see the video, it's a lot better, okay? He says, yes, it's a gift to exist, and with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. If you are grateful for your life then you have to be grateful for all of it. You can't pick and choose what you're grateful for. What do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss, which allows you to connect with that pers other person, which allows you to love more deeply and understand what it's like to be a human being, if it's true that all humans suffer. So at a young age, I suffered something. So that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life with my friends or with my wife or my children, I understood that everybody is suffering. And however, imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and to connect with them and to love them in a deep way that not only accepts that all of us suffer, but makes you grateful for the fact that you have suffered so that you can know that about other people. It's about the fullness of your humanity. What's the point of being here if you can't be the most human you can be? I want to be the most human I can be, and that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful for the things I wish didn't happen because they gave me a gift. And listen to how he finishes. And in my tradition, the greatest gift of the sacrifice of Christ is that God does it too. You're really not alone. God does it too. When my son was little, I walked into the kitchen and I saw him hanging from our table by his arms. Now we have a countertop height table. And for a three-year-old, it's not necessarily safe for them to climb up in the chairs and try to get something from the table. Well, one day, as I walked in the kitchen, my son climbed up into the chair, and he was reaching for something on the table. But as he did, he pushed that chair away, and he was hanging there by his armpits, just kicking his legs with a fear of terror on his face. 
This time I did not laugh, but I ran over and I picked him up as fast as I possibly could and I held him tight. Why did I do that? Because I wanted to. What did my son want? He wanted me to put the chair back. My son wasn't asking for me to come hug him. He wanted the chair back. What did dad want to do? Go hug him. And oftentimes when we're in the storms of this life, we're asking God to put the chair back when all God wants to do is to step into the mess with us and just hold us and hug us. You see, Colbert is right. God does it too. And he does it in his son, Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus does for his disciples. Look at verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. Now, some people have talked about this week. They're trying to figure out, what did this mean? Did they happen to drift closer to land? Was this a miracle within a miracle? And all of a sudden, Jesus just shows up. He gets in the boat. They just show up on the shore, right? Either way, I don't know if it's important to know if it was a miracle or not, but it is important to know the reaction of the disciples. You see, Matthew tells us what was the reaction of the disciples after this event. Listen to what it says in Matthew 14, 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Like we just talked about, Jesus uses the word, words ego and me. And here, he doesn't just use the words, but he exhibits the power of God. The God who has the ability to meet us in the storm and the God who has the ability to show us more of who he is in the storm. You see, these disciples would have not only known Exodus 3, but they also would have known Psalm 107. You see, in Psalm 107, we read about the power of God and what God and God alone is able to do. Listen to what it says. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Who's the psalm talking about there? God. Only God could calm the wind, the storm, and the seas. He's the only one who has the power over the chaos, the death, and destruction. And when these disciples, it's so funny to me, they're so scared of the storm, but then Jesus steps into the boat and this happens, they're more fearful of him in a worshipful, reverent way. Because who is in their boat is who? God. God alone. You see, Jesus isn't safe, guys, but Jesus is good. You remember Florence Chadwick and her failed swim up the channel. Well, two months after her failed attempt, she tried to swim once more. Once again, a thick fog set in. But this time, she had a mental image of the shoreline in her mind. And as she pushed herself along, and not only did she succeed, but Chadwick ended up making the swim additional two times. And for good measure, Chadwick also became the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. Why did she say she was able to finish the race? Because she kept the shoreline in her mind constantly before her. In the same way, what you and I have to understand is no matter what befalls us in this life, that if you're in Christ, it's not ultimately determinative. It won't defeat you. It won't annihilate you. Why is that? Because Jesus took on the only storm that you and I can never take on in our own might and power and he defeated it for us. You see, the only storm that can truly destroy you is your sin, Satan, and death. And by going to the cross for you and instead of you and dying in your place, taking your sin, your death, your shame, your guilt, and giving you his life, what Jesus is emphatically saying is that storm can't touch you. 
Because I've already quieted it in your soul because I already paid for what you deserve to pay for, for you and instead of you. And because of that, the shoreline you and I look to in the midst of our suffering is not necessarily a beach, but it's an empty tomb. The fact that Jesus didn't remain dead, but three days later, what does it say? He rose again, and by rising again, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, emphatically declaring, for all time, for those who are in him, what? He's defeated Satan, sin, and death for you. He stepped into the boat, and he took you to your desired haven. And what is that? To be with him. One of my friends years ago taught me a very powerful lesson. And I debated whether to say this or not, but I think I will. We'll just say her name's Sarah. Anyway, she was a volunteer in my ministry, and uh, she ended up getting diagnosed with cancer. And my wife and I still have an answering machine. You remember those old archaic things where people would actually call in and leave an answer, like a voicemail, and you'd have to delete it? We still have the voicemail of her talking about her husband who also got diagnosed with cancer right before she did, being cured, but she still had a long way to go. Makes me cry every time I talk about it. Anyway, I saw her at church, and she was in a wheelchair, and she wasn't doing well at all. And I remember she said, hey, Travis, I need to talk to you. And I said, what's going on? And she said, I need you to do my funeral. And I said, no, please don't talk about that. She said, no. You don't cry, and you're going to do my funeral, and I want you to talk about Jesus because everybody's going to be there. She went into hospice. And while she was in hospice, she shared with me she would never wish her cancer on anyone. But she actually was so courageous to say, I would never wish it away either. Because she said what it taught me about Jesus through it. She ended up dying. And I didn't cry at her funeral. I cried afterwards. And I cry right now. But what Sarah showed me is just what the song you hear on the Christian radio says, that I can praise you in the storm and I can lift my hands. Because I know who you are. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, do you know who he is in the midst of the storm? Do you know? Jesus has come. To show you the goodness of who he is. Not safe, but absolutely good. And here's the good news. In the gospel, there are no goodbyes. There are only what? See you later. Because we'll see her again. We'll see her again. Do you know Jesus? Let's pray.